iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Before we get to today's show, just a quick programming note. There was a bizarre screw-up this week in that the publishing system seemed to get a gremlin inside it and all on its own published a message I put out over a year ago during, you know, really at the height of the George Floyd protests and when all that was happening. So this was an error. I did not do this. Nobody on our team did this. It just did it on its own. But I do apologize if people were confused. There is a pod this week because you're about to hear it right now. And we've asked the company that publishes the pod to get to the bottom of why this happened. But anyhow, sorry. Obviously, there's a pod as normal this week. Um, so thank you for bearing with us in, through these technical difficulties. And now let's get to this week's episode. Let's go. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The reason why whales were liberated from harpoons wasn't because people were concerned about whales. It's because we invented kerosene, and kerosene was a cheaper, more efficient way to light our homes. We used to live pluck geese for their quills, um, but nobody stopped using quills because they cared about geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. Right. And you know the list goes on and on and on of these type of examples where animal exploitation was displaced not by humane sentiment, but rather by technological innovation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. This week, we're going to talk about mushrooms, but not psychedelics, though I do love that topic, and we've covered it a lot here on the pod. But instead, we're going to talk about mycelium, which you can think of as like the roots of mushrooms. Now, why would we be talking about mushroom roots? Well because they can be fermented into something that apparently looks and tastes like meat, beef, chicken, whatever it may be. Um, Now this sounds weird, I know, but this is what this week's guest is working on. On the program, we have Paul Shapiro. He is a former animal rights campaigner from the Humane Society, and he spent years as a kind of guerrilla activist, you know, secretly recording slaughterhouses and lobbying on Capitol Hill for better animal welfare, etc. But he chucked all that in a few years ago to start his company called Better Meat. And they're based out here in uh, Sacramento. And unlike the other kind of alternative meat companies, we've covered uh, many of them on this pod. What they're trying to do is really build themselves into an ingredients company rather than a consumer brand and sell their mushroom-based meat replacements directly to the big food companies in hopes that he can ultimately 
save the lives of billions of animals, slash CO2 emissions from industrial agriculture, make people healthier, etc., etc., etc. It's a really interesting idea. Paul has taken a very circuitous route, let's say, to being a startup founder, which I think you'll enjoy listening to. And the thing that really sticks out to me is how he started out as this idealist, and he still is, um, as you'll soon hear. But the realization that he had along the way of just getting people to stop eating meat for the sake of the animals themselves or the planet, that's just too heavy of a lift. It's probably not going to happen. They'll do it when they have an alternative that is just as good and just as cheap. So what that really requires is, of course, innovation, rather than trying to change the hearts and minds of billions of people. So that is what he is attempting to do at Better Meat. It's a really interesting story. I think you guys are really enjoying it get a lot out of it. So that is what we're going to do right now. Here's my conversation with Paul Shapiro, founder of the Better Meat Company. Enjoy. As you may know, if you've listened to some of the pods, I've done a lot over the past 18 months on the kind of all things, let's call it alternative proteins, whether that's dairy, cheese, egg, beef, chicken, the whole gamut. And I think it's a fascinating area, but also just trying to draw out kind of, you know, there's a lot of science projects still where it's like the promise is immense, but the path to get there is far from assured. And so, through those meanderings, someone mentioned you, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. They're another kind of meat company, but what you're doing is different than a lot of the others. And then I was like, oh, but and you also ran the Humane Society previously? I did not run it, uh, but I, I did work there. But I'll tell you, like, you know, first of all, Danny, you mentioned like these companies that are doing cool science, but there's a meandering path to get there where they need to go. And yeah. it's certainly not, you know, it's far from being a sure bet, right? Yes. And you yes. know, that's that's the nature of venture, you know, like you yep. nothing ventured, nothing what is it, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So yeah, um, you know, that's the whole nature of it. And yeah, I mean, look, some of these companies won't exist five years from now, and some of them will be big. And it's yeah. hard to pick. It's hard to know who those winners will be. But uh, I am a believer in the whole space. Like my point of view is that it's going to take a lot of oars in the water to get to where we need to go. So, you know, just to back up, like, yeah, I mean, meat consumption is going up, not down. We know that the planet isn't getting any bigger. We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. Like we only have one celestial body to farm. And we already have 8 billion humans walking around, and we're probably going to add another couple billion in the next 30 years, presuming there's no catastrophe that happens first. And, you know, we can't just keep eating the same amount of meat and expect not to destroy the planet. Like, it's the, the number one cause of deforestation, wildlife extinction, increases pandemic risk. Like there's so many reasons, climate change reasons. There's so many reasons that we need to move away from uh, raising all these animals for food. But the problem is that meat demand continues rising, not just on... Um, not just by because population is rising, but per person, meat demand is rising. Yeah. In the US, in China, in India, in Brazil, like all the places it's going to matter the most, meat consumption is going up, not down. And so I view it like this. I would love it if people wanted to walk and bike more and drive and fly less, but people are probably going to want to drive and fly. And so yeah. we need to find let's, ways let's to- be re- Let's be realistic. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, it, it's very unlikely that people are going to want to go back to the 19th century. Yeah. Um, more likely they want to go into the 21st century. So we need to find ways to produce energy that don't rely on fossil fuels. Similarly, I would love it if people wanted to just eat bean and rice burritos and lentil soup and hummus. Those are great foods. I love eating them, but people seem to really like eating meat. 
And so can we create the experiences without animals? And that's what we need to do. And so I'm rooting for all the companies in the space, including my own, but I don't have some tribal loyalty. Honestly, yeah, I yeah. really, I really am rooting for all of them uh, to succeed. So can you just briefly describe what better meets approach is what you're doing? And then I want to get into kind of, you know, back up into what you were doing beforehand. Sure. Okay. So put it this way, Danny, there's lots of ways to go, go back to our energy uh, analogy, right? So you can recreate what fossil fuels do from wind, from solar, from geothermal, from nuclear. There's lots of ways to make carbon-free energy, basically. So at the same time, there's lots of ways to make meat without animals. So one way is to uh, make go to the plant kingdom and convert things like soybeans and wheat or peas and convert them into something that looks like animal meat and tastes like animal meat. And that's a long way to go. You know, plants and animals are very far apart evolutionarily. You got animals over here, plants over here. And so that's a long distance. And so to do that, you have to basically, let's take pea as an example, since pea protein is like the star ingredient right now. You essentially grow a field of peas, harvest that field of peas, mill it into a flour, but that pea flour is very low in protein, like 20% protein. Mm. So you have to fractionate it which and isolate it, which means you strip out the fiber, strip out the fat, so you concentrate that pea protein down. So now you're at like 70 or 80% protein. So you've got a pea protein powder that like, you know, some athlete might take, for example. But that powder, while extremely high in protein, is not textured like animal flesh. And so you subject it to something that's typically called twin screw high moisture extrusion. And in that it's basically a fancy way. That sounds of really saying, easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cheap, very inexpensive. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, it's a fancy way of saying you're applying lots of pressure and lots of heat. So plant proteins tend to be globular. They're like a, a globe. Animal proteins tend to be stringy. And so when you extrude them in that process that I just mentioned, you change that structure to go from globular to stringy proteins. And that's how you get the hero ingredient of something like a Beyond Burger, that it, it creates a stringier protein. And so you can change that plant protein into something that is more animal-like in its nature. Um, but of course, much lower footprint on the planet, much lower footprint on animals, much better for your health. Like there's all these thing, ways, that, there are all these reasons you want to do it. But it does take a lot of processing to do all that, as I just mentioned. So if you don't want to go to the plant kingdom, you can go to the animal kingdom and grow actual animal cells. And that's what's oftentimes called clean meat or cultivated meat and growing real actual animal meat from cells rather than from slaughter. And I wrote a book on the topic. It's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And the basic premise is that there's some people who want what they perceive as like the real thing, right? Yes. And those people, they don't want a, a meat alternative. They want meat from animals. And so then, uh, you know, you can do that. You can grow real meat and I've eaten it many times um, and it's good. It really tastes great. In fact, uh, really interestingly, so we're recording this uh, toward the end of January 2022 and Super Meat in Israel, which is a startup making cultivated meat, just did a blind taste test with renowned chefs in Israel. And they gave them an actual chicken breast from a slaughtered bird and their cultivated chicken breast and asked them, can you tell the difference? And the renowned chefs guessed wrong. They could not tell which was which. Wow. And so Time Magazine just did a really cool story on this. But so that's how good these products have gotten that you, the cultivated chicken is apparently indistinguishable from the, uh, from the slaughtered chicken. So that's one thing. But th there is a problem in that it's really expensive and it's going to take a long time to scale this up. So, you know, cultivating animal meat is very costly. You need to have a lot of capital expenditures and operating expenditures to do it. And it's not that 
it's not a good thing to do. Lots of things start out being very costly and then they come down. In fact, this industry, this industry has already done that. You know, the very first cultivated burger, which was served in 2013, uh, had a price tag of more than three hundred thousand dollars for that. That was the one in in London, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. So it was uh, it was created by Dutch scientists, but they debuted it in London. Yeah. And so you know that price tag, which is less than a decade ago, was over three hundred thousand dollars for a burger. Those same people are now saying they're talking about ten dollars a burger less than a decade later. So you can see there's kind of like a Moore's law effect that's like going down, right? And that I think will continue because that technology has been in the bio or the pharma world where they didn't have the price pressures that being in the food world has. You know, people are willing to spend a lot of money for medicine. They're not willing to spend a lot of money for food. So there is this pressure to bring prices down, and they're doing that. Now, to get to where you really were asking me, it's a very long-winded answer, so yeah, I yeah. apologize, Danny. But That's all good. You have, so you can go to the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom, both of which have pros and cons. But what we at the Better Meat Co. are doing is something different. We're not going to the plant kingdom. We're not going to the animal kingdom. We're going to the fungi kingdom. And fungi are a completely different kingdom. Many people think of them as plants. Like if you got a portobello sandwich and somebody referred to it as a plant-based sandwich, you would probably not think it was misleading. For everyone at home, we're talking about mushrooms. Um, Yeah. So fungi are not mushrooms, though. So just to say. So so fungi and mushrooms are the same, but there's a little bit of a difference. A mushroom is the fruiting body of the fungi. So it's kind of like saying apples are plants. It's true, but apples are the fruiting body of the plant, right? That's, and so the mushroom is the fruiting body. Um, But 90% of fungi species don't even produce any mushrooms at all. And what we do is we don't use mushrooms. We use what's called mycelium. And so that mycelium is the root-like structure that goes underneath the ground. And um, what you can do, what we do is we basically take microscopic fungi and we subject them to a special kind of fermentation. And so imagine what happens like with the fermentation that occurs in a cow. The cow eats grass and almost by magic, really not by magic, just by fermentation, they convert that grass into a steak. But yeah. it takes a long it takes a long time, over a year. It takes over a year before you get that steak. Whereas what we do is take microscopic fungi and we subject them to a fermentation that is all natural. And within less than one single day, we then have a steak. And so that steak is similar in the way that it tastes and has a texture to animal This is where you've lost me. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let me find you. Let me go back. (laughs) All right. So, you know, it is mysterious how how grass gets turned into a steak inside of a cow's body. Yeah. But what's happening is the cow is digesting this and and that the energy from that grass gets converted into the cow's flesh. What we're doing is eating the quote unquote flesh of our microorganisms. So this is what's called microbial fermentation or microbial farming. And so what we do is we take these little tiny microscopic mycelia, which again is the root-like structure of the fungi, and we subject it to a fermentation and they eat things like potatoes and corn and they convert it into something that becomes high protein. So you take something like a potato, which is less than 1% protein, and you can convert it into the biomass, which is like a scientific way of saying the microbes is their, their quote unquote bodies. That's actually 45% protein in less than one day. You go from less than 1% protein to 45%. Protein. So this sounds like almost like some kind of high tech composting. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a kind of interesting way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more costly than that. But yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, we're taking a process that happens in nature. We're wrapping stainless steel around it, and we're allowing it to take place in sterile environment. That, that's really what we're doing. Right. So that after that one day, what am I looking at? Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you. Uh, you're looking at what is called mycelium. 
And really, it looks like raw chicken, honestly. And it's chewy. So if you think about what you, when we go back to what we had to do to peas in order to get them to have the texture of animal meat, we don't have to do any of that. We don't have to mill it. We don't have to fractionate it or isolate it or extrude it straight out of our fermenter. It has the natural texture of meat and has those stringy proteins already yeah. in there. And so you might wonder, like, why? Why would fungi be more similar to animal meat than plants are? And the answer is that fungi as a kingdom are way closer to animals, way closer to animals. You know, so if you think about it, like plants have to put themselves in the sun and photosynthesize. That's how they get their energy. Fungi, like animals, they're so close to animals, they go out, they digest their food and they ingest it, right? Same thing, like we breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2. We know plants do the opposite. They breathe in CO2 and breathe out oxygen. Well, fungi are so much closer evolutionarily to animals than to plants that they, like us, breathe in oxygen. And so the point is, you know, you, you can see why many mushrooms have a far more meat-like texture than do plants. And it doesn't mean all mushrooms or all fungi are, but there's many of them that actually are very meat-like in their texture to their like to their so-called flesh. Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. We're we're essentially converting microscopic fungi within a day into foods that look like raw chicken. And then once out of the fermenter, we turn them into things like steaks and chicken breasts and fish sticks and crab cakes. And it has a tiny fraction of the footprint needed to raise and slaughter animals. And it's a whole food. So it's not something that's been fractionated rice away. It's a whole food that on its own has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, uh, which plant foods typically lack. So it's a real superfood and it's delicious. We eat it all the time and uh, we absolutely love it. It's really good. So you have this one day process. It comes out and you have this, uh, I guess, some kind of like mound of chicken-like high protein food. When you say we then turn it into steak, we then turn it into fish sticks, we then turn it into X. How does that work? Because obviously, you know, basically, if we're talking about mushroom roots that look like chicken, that doesn't sound like a steak to me. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So uh, what you would do is you take your that that original substrate and you essentially do things like first add beet juice, second, add some oil, third, add some flavorings in the form of yeast extract. And you, then you get something that really does resemble a steak, honestly. I mean, it, we actually served it at a steakhouse here in Sacramento uh, and people loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. And so where are you right now in terms of actually a company? So you've kind of appeared to be have perfecting in the process of perfecting this, this kind of process. Um, but then, of course, you know, if you go to the supermarket, I see Beyond Meat and I see the Impossible Burger and that's kind of it. And then I see like bean burgers, which are a separate thing, which are very clearly like this is a, just a bunch of beans mashed up together. What are you guys doing or t in terms of like the business and getting it out in front of customers and whatnot? Okay. Well, first and foremost, I love all the companies you mentioned, including the bean burgers, which I love eating. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm old school. I'm very happy to eat a bean burger. Uh, and, I, and I also like Beyond and Impossible. Uh, however, you know, those are uh, CPG branded companies. So, you know, they're trying to create a brand and want you to go to them. We are a B2B ingredients company. We're not trying to put a product on the shelf. So in the same way that, you know, if you want to, let's say, make one of these products, you might go to Cargill and you can buy from Cargill pea protein or wheat protein yeah. or soy protein or whatever. They're the ingredient provider. That's us. And so we now are partnered with Hormel Foods as an example, where we're doing joint development on this mycelium because, you know, right now, 99% of the alternative meat market is basically pea, wheat, or soy or some combination of those three. And we are going to offer a new alternative, something that is 
even better for you. Those are good for you, but this is even better. It's a whole food and a way more meat-like texture. So you can create a more convincing meat experience than you can with plant protein isolates. So what we as a company are, are seeking to do is to create this new category of ingredients for the animal-free meat market that will enable a more convincing way to really satiate humanity's meat tooth without animals. And to answer your question, Danny, about where we are as a company, we're so small. We have less than 20 employees. I started the company back in uh, 2018. And so we're, you know, as of this recording, we haven't even hit our fourth birthday yet. But we have built a lot. Uh, we're really proud of what we've done. We've built the largest mycelium biomass fermentation facility in North America. We're partnered with Hormel. Uh, we've gotten uh, patent protection on our process. And we are now looking to build a full-scale commercial operation with a fermenter the size of an office building that we can then create a river of our mycelium to flow through the food industry and reduce the need for animals for food. So let's go backward then. How did you end up doing this? What did you do before? <laughs> okay. So uh, I have had a, a deep love for animals my entire life. Where did you grow up, first of all? In Maryland. So um, my mom worked at our local animal shelter and I loved dogs and I considered the dogs in my family as like our family members. Like I did not, you know, I did not view them as like pieces of property. I, I just viewed them as like my brothers and sisters. In fact, I've joked, uh, that's not that much of a joke, that there may have been times in my childhood where I loved our family dogs even more than maybe some of my biological family members. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I, I grew up with this deep sense sensitivity for animals. And when I was 13, I became really concerned because a friend of mine showed me a video of what happens inside of factory farms and slaughterhouses. And keep in mind, like, we're talking like the year 1993. So there's no YouTube, right? This, like, totally. this friend, he had like a VHS tape. You put it in a VCR and we watched this. Uh, for those of you. Where did he get this VHS tape? Yeah, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Um, I, that I, sounds like like some kind of black market type <laughs> stuff. We're talking about early 90s, like, yeah. you know, well, getting that kind of footage. Yeah. So do you remember, Danny, uh, Faces of Death? You remember I that? do. Yeah. So I do. It, yeah. So it was like that. It was like, so for those who don't remember, Faces of Death was basically this disgusting video, a series of videos that you could watch of people dying. Yeah. And, and it was like young boys liked to do it because they thought it was cool. Yeah. It's, I don't know if like we have a lot of overseas listeners uh, in the UK and, and beyond, but in the US, Faces of Death had this kind of aura, yeah. especially yeah. amongst young kids of, I imagine we're roughly the same age. Yeah, it was like a thing. It was like this forbidden thing. And when you got it, you're like, oh, I'm watching a video of like actual people actually dying. And you're right. kind of don't understand it, but it feels illicit and kind of weird. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the draw that it was illicit, that it was yeah. like, you know, it was like, I can't believe this. And it was sick. I mean, it was like people being executed, people yeah, were just yeah. dying in a hospital, like all these, all these really sick things to watch. Yes. Um, I remember one of them was like a dude being beheaded. I, was like, I can't believe oh. I'm watching this. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so my friend showed it to me in that spirit. Like he did not right. show it to me like, oh, I feel so bad for these animals. He showed it to me in the spirit of like, dude, this is sick. Like you got to watch yeah. this. But when I watched it, I remember very vividly, I was thinking, well, like what do these animals do to deserve this punishment? Like they're in cage, they're locked up in cages. We're cutting off their testicles without pain relief. We're branding them with like third degree burns. We're slitting their throats. Like all these things I was watching. I was like, man, what would I do if those were my dogs? And of course, yeah. like the answer was that there was nothing I wouldn't do to stop that from happening to my own dogs. And so 
Um, that led me to essentially go down a road where um, I stopped eating animals. And by the time I got into high school, there was no like animal rights club or anything there. So when I was in high school, I started one. And then uh, after college, turned that into a national organization. So like what I started in high school, which at the time we called Compassion Over Killing, turned into first like a, a citywide organization in Washington, D.C., and then a national organization when I was in college. And then nepotistically, I thought I was qualified to work there. And so I hired myself after I got out of college and then continued building the organization and hiring more people. And eventually we had offices on both coasts and, and worked there for a number of years after college. Wow. And what, what we did was essentially um, made videos like the one that I saw. So we would uh, you know, do things like conduct undercover exposés inside of slaughter plants and more. Oh, so you were like, you were the dude with the video camera sneaking around. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Right. Did you ever get caught or were there any uh, hairy situations? Uh, yeah, there were a number of times that were near calamitous, uh, but uh, there was never any time where I, I felt like, you know, like I was going to be killed or anything. Yeah. Um, but but there were, you know, there were times where it was not uh, it was not comfortable. But we did undercover investigations at uh, livestock auctions, slaughter plants, factory farms and more. And we made a lot of these documentaries uh, back then in, in kind of like the pre-YouTube era. So at some point, though, I, I started thinking that it might be better to pursue public policies to help advance the interests of animals. And before you get to that, did you get funding for this organization? And if so, like, did you raise a bunch of money or was it I mean, I imagine it was a nonprofit, but how did you kind of create this thing? How where did the money <laughs> come from? Yeah, so I incorporated in high school and got it like designated by the IRS as a 501c3 charity so people could get tax deductions for donating. And then we raised enough money that we and you know hired uh, several people. First started out with myself first and then hired several other people as we continued. We were doing things like I mean the the work that we were doing was in the news quite often and as a result right. people were hearing about it. And you know this is you know before we had you know, podcasts and all that. So it was like people would see something on CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post. And that was major back then because there was no real widespread like alternative press. There weren't a lot of like individual media creators like yourself. And so that led to a lot of people hearing about us, which led to a lot of funding for the organization. And that's that's how we funded the operation. Now, I, I will say we were making very little money. So, you know, yeah, we, sure. we, were, we were working full time and we had salaries, but I can assure you that it, it was uh, pretty paltry what we paid ourselves. But after doing that for years, I started thinking, you know, really like raising awareness is not sufficient. That's what we were mainly doing was like trying to raise awareness. And I now have come to realize that raising awareness is virtually always insufficient, that it, it's not, you know, you're not going to change people's minds just by raising awareness. And I thought, well, you know, we really just need to pass laws. Like we need to pass laws banning some of these practices. And so I went to the Humane Society and, and worked there for more than a decade. And we managed to pass a number of laws in a variety of states to crack down on some of the most inhumane factory farming practices. But during this time, I was becoming very worried that what we were doing might not be the best way, especially after that burger was debuted in 2013 and then in 2015 and 2016, like the Good Food Institute got founded and Memphis, Meat, Memphis Meats was founded to actually commercialize this technology. And it made me think about the following. You know, if you look at the history of the animal protection movement in the United States, it started out with the concern about horses in the streets of New York and other major cities. Horses were being savage, just beaten, whipped. And 
uh, you know, the, the first groups that were founded in the late 1860s and 70s, all they were doing was trying to get horses better working conditions. They wanted resting hours. They wanted watering stations. They wanted Sabbath days to give the horses one day a week where they couldn't be worked. But in the end, you know, Henry Ford liberated horses. It wasn't the animal welfare reformers. And Henry Ford didn't care about horses. He was completely agnostic about the treatment of horses. And he was not that great of a guy for other reasons, too. He didn't, didn't really like Jews that much. But his work did end up liberating horses. And the animal welfare campaigners weren't even trying to liberate horses. Yeah, I mean, he was. It was kind of like a almost a byproduct of his success doing something else. That's exactly right, Danny. And it turns out that this happened time and time again. Yeah. So the reason why whales were liberated from harpoons wasn't because people were concerned about whales. It's because we invented kerosene, and kerosene was a cheaper, more efficient way to light our homes. We used to live pluck geese for their quills, and, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson actually had his own flock of geese. He was such a prolific writer; he had his own flock of geese just for live plucking them. For for their quills. It's a very torturous thing to do to these birds. Um, but nobody stopped using quills because they cared about geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. Right. And you know the list goes on and on and on of these type of examples where animal exploitation was displaced not by humane sentiment, but rather by technological innovation. So here I was thinking, okay, well, I'm essentially a lobbyist and I'm trying to pass these laws that were akin to what the reformers in the 1870s were trying to pass. And now there's this new crop of people are coming in and saying, actually, we're going to just promote technologies that are going to render this obsolete. Right. Uh, sorry. And by that time, you had gone from Compassion Over Killing to the Humane Society? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, I made that switch in 2005. Okay. And so now, you know, it's a decade later and I'm I'm thinking maybe yeah, maybe technology and innovation might be even more efficient. Mm. It's not not that I don't like the laws. I mean, trust me, I think that's really important, but I started thinking like maybe there's a better way. And so I thought, you know, I'm not a business person, I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't have money to invest in these companies. I, I'm not a tissue engineer or a microbiologist. Like, what can I contribute? And I thought, well, I, I can write. And so I wrote a book um, and I, well, I, I wrote a proposal for a book and I got fortunate that Simon and Schuster purchased it. And so I wrote the book for them and uh, wrote the book Queen Meat, in which I really chronicled the race between the entrepreneurs and the investors, the scientists who are all racing to bring slaughter free meat to the mainstream. And in writing that book, it became really evident to me that many of the people who are leading these successful companies didn't have any experience. <laughs> You know, yeah, they were, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were people who didn't have any business background. Some of them didn't have any scientific background. Like they were raising a lot of money for companies that were actually doing really amazing science, but they had as much experience as I did, which meant very little. And so when I published the book, uh, which is now four years ago, I was very heartened by the response to it, like not to like tout it that too much, but it, it did become a Washington Post bestseller. The Wall Street Journal did a great review of it. NPR reviewed it. Like it really generated a lot of headlines at the time. And I became really interested in like thinking, well, I could really make a difference here um, by writing about this because I have now attracted a lot of people to the space, investors, entrepreneurs, scientists. I mean, even to this day, four years later, I, I, not a week goes by that I don't hear from people who say that they work in the space or they've invested in the space for some or started their own company because of the book. And so I thought, you know, this is awesome. But I was going to do another book, uh, which is going to be like a history of plant-based meat. So basically plant-based meat from ancient China to the Impossible Burger. And I think that was still, I hope if you're listening, I hope you'll write that book because I think it's a cool book. Um, <laughs> but then I was really faced and I was talking with uh, my wife about this. Well, she's now my wife. She was then my girlfriend. But I was talking with her about this. Like, you know, I could continue to write about the people who I think are going to save the world or I could become one of them. 
And I made that decision to uh, do the latter. And so I started the Better Meat Co. in 2018 as a way to try to put my own oar in the water and see if we could actually help move this space faster. Because while I love the cultivated meat space, I'm concerned that's just going to take a long time when we're in a very urgent crisis right now. It's going to take a long time. Plant-based meat has been around for decades. It's still languishing at less than 1% of the total meat market. And it's still, it still is uh, more expensive than animal-based meat, even with the vast amount of resources that have come in to uh, fund that space. So I thought there, maybe there's a, another way. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a better way, but I am saying it is another way. And I am very grateful that a lot of people believed in this vision and have funded our company. And we have great team members who have believed in their company to leave their promising careers to come here to work and do this instead. And it's been such an honor for me to be a part of it. And in now having run my own company for the last nearly four years, uh, I can tell you uh, that uh, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz is a really funny line where he says that, you know, you start your own company and you'll sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that's that that to me is like is is the experience. Uh, it's it's definitely a novel thing for me, but it's a wild ride. And I'm, I'm very honored to be able to do it. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So when you started the company, when you kind of had that realization, like, okay, I don't want to write about these, these people, I want to be one of them. How did you start? Like, who gave you your first check? Did you come up with like, I mean, was it immediately clear? You're like, oh, I'm gonna do this fungi based alternative? Like, how did you get there? How did you raise the money? How did this kind of come together? Sure. Uh, well, I should say I do still write about these people and that I do publish like a, a newspaper and magazine articles about this. So I do feel like I still am writing to some extent about them. Um, at the same time, to answer your question directly, Danny, having been involved in the world of philanthropy for a long time, I knew a lot of people who really want to help animals and who donate a lot of money for it. So imagine, you know, if you are accustomed to, let's say, donating money to help animals and you're not getting anything in return. You're, you might get a tax write-off, but that you don't really, you're just giving the money away. Whereas if you could do something that might even do more good for animals and you have the potential of a return on that investment, it's a pretty attractive thing. And so to answer your question, what did I do? I went to the people who I knew had uh, been writing checks to groups like the Humane Society for a long time and said, you know, we've worked together for years. This is what I'm gonna do now. Are you interested? And uh, we were able to, raise at first a uh, $1.6 million pre-seed round, which is a very big pre-seed round. 
And then uh, a couple years later, basically, we raised um, a seed round of over $8 million. And then we raised even more than that and some other subsequent financings. And so to date, uh, in less than four years, it's been a few tens of millions of dollars that we've raised. Uh, we've, spent, we've spent much less than that, but that's how much we've raised. So it was primarily at first people who were really philanthropists in the animal welfare space. But then it became at a level where it would really only venture capital funds would be funding it. And that, that's, who our, that's who our primary backers are now. And was it always mycelium? Was that always the idea? Um, I knew that we wanted to explore innovative ways to do it. It wasn't the idea from the very beginning. So what ended up happening was, you know, we knew we were going to do ingredients to try to help food companies use fewer animals. And so we first started experimenting with uh, wheat proteins and then soy proteins and eventually pea proteins. And we still sell some of that, actually. So we, for example, we sell to Purdue Farms, the chicken company, mm -hmm. and they do uh, what's called Purdue Chicken Plus. That is a half chicken, half plant-based nugget. So it's 50% chicken, 50% plant-based. And it sells well. In fact, the Food Network named it the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. So mm. think about that. Like if you could, I mean, involve frozen chicken nuggets were, you know, half plant-based, you'd need billions of fewer birds. Anyway, the point is like, you know, we still do that, but it became very clear to me early on that there didn't appear from what I could see, at least a clear pathway to price parity, like using these plant protein isolates, I didn't realize and still don't see the way that it's going to come down to being cheaper than chicken. Uh, chicken is just really cheap, even when scaled up though. I mean, even, you know, even Beyond Meat, which is a massively funded company, yeah, yeah. It is more expensive than beef, let alone chicken. And beef is way more expensive than chicken, and they are still more expensive than beef. Their CEO has said that their goal is to be uh, at price parity with beef by the year 2025, uh, which is a, a great goal, but it's still, you know, it's just a long way away. Um, and so I, I'm not suggesting I would do anything differently in his shoes, but I, I am saying it's just, we're in an urgent crisis. And so after a few months, we started looking into ways that might be better. And mycelium was a clear winner for us for a lot of reasons. And you're a first hire. I'm always interested in, in that. Like, especially you don't have this typical business background. You were kind of, you know, working in nonprofits and lobbying lawmakers to, you know, protect animals, et cetera. Was it hard to get your first hire, especially when you're talking about like, you're going to need scientists, you're going to need some very accomplished people who probably have, you know, who may be spoiled for choice. Was that a difficult, how hard was that? It was hard. And uh, I mean, to this day, I'm probably the least qualified person to have their job at our company. So it was hard. Uh, but when you have very little cash, you offer people combinations of both cash and equity. So, you know, you come to our company very early and you own a piece of the company that's, you know, non-de minimis. So that means that you're hiring people who really believe that you're going to succeed. And that's great because you want those people who actually believe in not just the vision, but also that you can execute. And so uh, that's how we did it was by hiring people who were willing to take less cash in exchange for a piece of the company so that they could be literally invested in our success. Right, right. So where are you now? So you talked about, you mentioned earlier this idea of creating kind of a river of this protein to kind of inject into the kind of the meat system. You know, we had Upside on this podcast. We've also had Beyond Meat on this podcast, Ethan. And Uma at Upside, who was on here a couple months ago, and I tried his chicken. It was very tasty. I think they started at, you know, they were at 18,000, and they're talking about getting down to 20 or something. You know, the, that curve is happening. But as you say, it's still wildly expensive. And part of the issue is just scaling up these very complex 
biological reactions and making sure it still works, you know, when it's a thousand times larger and what does it cost to build that? It just, it feels like there's a lot of points of potential points of failure to get to that promised land. (laughs) So where are you right now? You say you have the biggest mycelium reactor. Is that like the size of a pint glass or is that the size of, you know, a a big brewing (laughs) vat or, you know, where are you on that, on that kind of a journey, if you will? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we're running in you know, the largest mycelium biomass fermentation. So there are some things that are much bigger that are, excuse me, in North America. But you know, there are other mycelial fermentations that are for things like enzymes, right? So companies like Cargo or ADM have massive, massive uh, yeah. fermentation uh, tanks, but the biomass of the of the mycelium is not what they're after, right? They want some secretion of it that is an enzyme that they might want. Uh, so that's not what we do. We want the actual biomass. So it'd be kind of like the difference between having chickens for the eggs or chickens for the chicken. Uh, we want the chicken for the chicken, which is we want the mycelial biomass. And that is, just to be frank, a lot cheaper than doing what the companies you're mentioning are doing. Uh, it's a much lower technological hurdle for us. So that's not a knock on them by any means. Uh, it just means what they're, what they're doing is a lot harder. So our prices right now are competitive with beef. Today, in 2022, our prices are competitive with beef. We're not at chicken prices, but we do think that once at scale, we can get to that, we think. Right. Um, so we have a, you know, a long way to go. But from where we were, which was four years ago, this was merely an idea, to today, where you ask how big the fermenter is, it's about three stories tall. So it's exciting for me. I'm a huge sci-fi fan and I love the movie Contact, which is based on a Carl Sagan novel. And you know, when Jodie Foster, did you see it? Do you see Contact? So you know the machine that she gets into? Mm -hmm. That's what I think of when I walk into our facility. I'm like, this looks like the machine that the the aliens gave us the blueprint for this. And this is the machine that is going to save humanity. And so that's kind of what I think of it. Uh, But we need to build something dramatically bigger. Like we can produce a, a... not a river yet. Uh, actually, you know, we can produce a, uh, we can produce like a, an eddy, maybe not a an river. An eddy, right, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and are there any that you know of, any hurdles to just like, you know, making it bigger? You know, scale scale theoretically often just will work because it's if the core reaction is the same, the core reaction is the same. But often just when you get bigger and bigger and there's other kind of inputs and outputs that start to happen it kind of can change the process or bring up new issues. Today, where you sit, do you see any issues like that? No. So there are economic hurdles to, like, for example, you know, get cheaper substrates and, and find ways to use less energy and so on. But no, not, not the actual technology of producing the mycelium. So there oftentimes are big differences between going like from bench to pilot, because what happens mm. in the lab is quite different from what happens when you get in the pilot. But from the pilot to the commercial, no. I mean, really what you said is true, Danny. Like the, the reactions are the same. The physics is the same. Um, so the barriers for us then are things like steel prices or right. long lead times for equipment. It's, it's less so about the science. So if mycelium is, is cheaper, it already has that kind of texture. It already has that kind of taste or, you know, similarity to meat that you don't have to jump through all of these very expensive hoops to kind of recreate. Why are you guys the ones who are doing this? You know, because as you say, there's been billions pouring into all these alternative meat companies. This feels like, especially if this process happens in a day, et cetera, that this is kind of the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in some ways it is, but I would put it this way. So these companies like um, Impossible Foods, they're not in the business of making soy protein. Like they buy what is commercially available on the market. 
and they make products from it. And so I guess the question is, why haven't the ingredient providers like the Cargills of the world been doing this? And the answer is because it's not scientifically easy to figure it out. It's capital intensive. You need to build the fermentation systems. And importantly, you don't know where to start. So the problem is there's thousands of species of fungi. So it's not true that, quote unquote, mycelium has these, all these properties that you just mentioned. Some species of mycelium do. So, you know, we ended up screening vast numbers of strains before settling on our workhorse. And it I turns see. out that some strains have uh, benefits for one application, but maybe others are better for a different application. And so it's kind of like if you look at the world of plants, there are only certain plants that we've really domesticated and that we have massive commercial production of, you know, corn, wheat, rice, soy, cotton, yeah. et cetera. In the fungal world, that just doesn't exist. Like there hasn't really been domestication. Like white button mushrooms are pretty much the only uh, exception to that. But in the mycelia world, there's none. Like there's literally none. I mean, so what we've done is essentially wild harvested something. And so what I liken it to, to go back to the chicken example, is imagine that you know, you're going to start Danny's chicken farm and you can have, you know, either chickens from today, which uh, grow to slaughter weight in about 40 days, or you can get chickens from 5,000 years ago, like prior to, you know, them being really domesticated where, you know, they're going to take two to three times that amount to, of time to grow. And that's what we're doing. We're using wild strains of mycelium. And so like we now are, are essentially engaged in a second act of domestication, like, you know, humanity domesticated plants and animals. Now we're going to start domesticating these fungi. So it is more difficult than it may appear in, in the way that I'm describing it, honestly. Right. As I said at the top, I've been covering this and writing a lot about this over the past year. And there's a ton of money and a ton of innovation happening. But right now, as you say, it's basically it's infinitesimal relative you know, alternative protein, fermented meat, whatever it may be, fermented meat basically doesn't exist in the consumer world yet. It's kind of getting there. Alternative proteins have made a tiny, tiny, tiny dent. If we throw forward 10 years, you know, if everything just like went gangbusters, do you have a sense of where we might be? What, how different kind of protein slash meat looks because this is obviously a big, big, big industry with very powerful vested interests. And, you know, it's um, these things aren't easy to change. But parts of that chain, especially when you look at like dairy, you, you take out one ingredient and replace it with a, you know, lab grown alternative that's better. And all of a sudden there's a whole value chain that kind of crumbles and then things can happen quite quickly. So I don't know if you have a sense of kind of where we are, whether we're on the cusp of just dramatic change or this is going to be a slower burn. I hope what I'm about to say is wrong. But I am not optimistic that you're going to see the dramatic change in the near term. Look, meat demand continues to go up, not down. Even with the explosion of interest in companies like Impossible and beyond, uh, you know, the rate of increase is higher in the meat world. So, I mean, we're raising more animals for food than we ever have before. Like there many of the people who live in this bubble of the alt protein bubble, they see all these things. Oh, KFC is serving Beyond Chicken. We got the Impossible Whopper. Like this is awesome. The revolution is upon us. But what they're not seeing is that, you know, the Tysons of the world are building new slaughter plants right now, or that the Biden administration just announced a $1 billion federal package to increase the nation's slaughter capacity. So like, you know, we're, we're excited because UC Davis got a $3 million grant to study cultivated meat, or Tufts gets a $10 million grant to study cultivated meat. 
And then there's a billion dollars just to increase water capacity. Like, you know, we, we can't ignore what's actually happening in the world, which is that meat demand is skyrocketing. And it's skyrocketing because people can afford it. People generally buy about as much meat as they can afford. Like the only things that have really reduced meat consumption have not been animal welfare or environmental concerns. They're depressed economies. Like that's what happens. And when people, when, when the economy is doing better, people eat more meat. When it's doing worse, they often eat less meat. That, that's really what it comes down to. And so obviously we don't want to root for the economy to fail, needless to say. So we need to find ways to produce meat without animals. So to answer your question, how quickly can that happen? It's going to take a lot of infrastructure to scale that up. A lot of infrastructure to scale that up. Even just look at the clean energy sector. It's still a tiny fraction of the energy use that we have and the amount of money needed. Just let's say for lithium ion batteries alone. I mean, you're talking to build the lithium ion battery factories that we would need or, you know, it's so, so vast. And so to the 10 year horizon that you're mentioning, Danny, I don't know. I mean, I hope Barclays predicts that by 2030, uh, these meats will be 10% of the meat market. That would be phenomenal. Uh, that, that seems be, that seems uh, seems optimistic. Yeah, very optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I hope I'm wrong. Like, I I want to be realistic. Um, no matter what, whether I predicted five, ten, fifteen percent, whatever it was, it won't it wouldn't change anything about what I do. Like, I would still work. Yeah, as, yeah. Hard, as hard as I do, so it wouldn't modify me, my daily actions. But uh, if I was looking at crystal ball, yeah, I would say I, I hope that we can reduce the number of animals used for food by billions in that time. And I, I truly believe that people will be very happy to accept it. I mean, people, you know, you walk into a room and you flick on a light switch, you know, nobody's sitting there thinking, oh, is this light coming from coal, coal, or, coal or, right, or, yeah. or, or wind? Like they don't think about it. They just want an illuminated room. And when people eat meat, they're not thinking, ah, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this. Like yeah. they're not thinking that. They just want the experience of eating meat. And so I think that if we can supply that, in the same way we can supply light without animals, people, and, and it's cost competitive, and it really is a similar sensory experience. I think that's when you start seeing the real change. So once it is really indistinguishable from sensory and it's cost competitive, that's when I think you see the real rapid shifts occurring, but that's going to take some time. Is there like a worst day of work that you remember or a day or a moment where you're like, what am I doing? This isn't going to work. <laughs> uh, every, every day when I come home, my wife says, what was the worst thing and the best thing to happen at work today? And usually they're both pretty dramatic. So, yeah. uh, you know, look, it's tough. Like it's, it's tough. And the head with the crown is always the heaviest. So, you know, when good people sometimes leave the company, that's really hard. You have other times where you've spent a lot to produce something and it turns out that it didn't meet the spec that you wanted. You have to toss the product. That's really hard. Uh, you're expecting to close a deal with somebody and it doesn't work or they back out or whatever. That could be a customer or an investor. Yeah. Those are horrible, are horrible things. And, you know, those are all things that occur. So I have uh, nothing but admiration for everybody out there who is trying to create something from nothing. Uh, it's not easy to do, but um, it's needed. And I am, like I said, like I don't have anything other than gratitude to be in the position that I'm in. And I just feel like I'm part of this team that is trying hard to make the world a better place. And in the same way that we are so grateful today that we don't have to use horses for labor anymore, we don't have to light our homes with whale oil anymore, I think that future generations are going to be grateful for the work that many in the alternative protein space did to free humanity from its reliance on the exploitation of animals. And that they're going to think like, I'm so glad that we're not locking animals in cages anymore and that we're not mutilating them and slitting their throats. They're going to think, I'm so glad that we don't have to commit that type of violence against animals anymore because these folks created innovations that rendered it obsolete. And that's really the goal of what we're trying to do.
Well, it'd be really interesting to see how it all develops. And I think obviously the, the product has to be really good. That's the core. But it does feel like, and it's, this is kind of amongst moneyed millennials, but people who are like, I'm not even going to have kids because of the resources involved in supporting another human today. It does feel like, I mean, and that again, that feels fringe, but the fact that people are actually thinking that way, you know, I think it's, it's a, we're in an interesting time. Yeah, I think also like uh, my own experience has been generally that the wealthier societies get, the fewer kids they have. Like there's a, a very a very tight correlation between poverty and high fertility, so you know like the the poorest nations tend to have the most childbirths per woman, whereas the rich countries tend to have very low childbirth. And I think most of those low fertility rates are not related to environmental concerns. They just don't want to have so many kids. I mean, even countries like Japan, which have very low fertility rate, I don't think it's because they're sitting around worried about adding more greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. I think. You know, they just have other things they want to do with their lives. Uh, so that that's a, a tough thing to try to figure out. But, you know, my goal is to, I expect that, you know, we got 8 billion today. There's going to be 10 billion of us by 2050. How are we going to feed us all sustainably? Like, how are we going to feed ourselves without destroying the planet? Like, there's only so much Amazon rainforest left that we can cut down. And like, you know, I guess the question is, do we view the animals on this planet as merely existing for us, or do we view them as existing with us? And if you take the latter view that they exist with us, then how much of their habitat should we destroy? Like how many of them should we usher into extinction in order to keep raising animals for food? Because that's the number one cause of deforestation. And so I presume people are gonna keep having kids, people are gonna keep flying, people will keep eating meat. And how can we make it so that we have a much lower footprint for all these activities? Well, I wish you luck. And um, it's a fascinating kind of topsy-turvy route you have taken. And um, But yeah, we'll have you, we'll have you back on in, uh, maybe uh, you know, later this year, early next year, and see where things have got to. Oh, that's really kind of you, Danny. I'm, I'm a fan of your show, and I'm really psyched that you are doing so many episodes on such an important topic. So you are welcome. And if, um, you've already had Upside Chicken. Come on over to Sacramento. Let us serve you some mycelial chicken here. I think you'll really like it. We'll roll out the red carpet for you, show you around. It's kind of like coming to Willy Wonka. You know, it's really cool. And you can see and taste the future of Caribbean. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, and good luck. Hey, thanks, Danny. It's really great to talk with you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Paul for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening. And again, for bearing with our technical snafu this week. Hopefully we'll get to the bottom of it soon and it doesn't happen again. And of course, we will be back next week with another pod. In the meantime, find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or in the in the paper in the times.co.uk. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And yeah, I'll be, I don't think I'll be writing about this week, but we will be writing about some tech regulation, you know, the, also the takeover of sports betting in America, which has just been insane. So there's lots of good stuff in the paper. So do check that out. But for the pod, I will leave you in peace for this week. Thank you for listening. Have a fabulous weekend. Talk soon.
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.